audio, we learned about the battle we are in, who it is against, and why we need to put on the armor of God. I pray you did the exercise of writing down the lies Satan shot at you through the week. And if you didn't, it isn't too late. Begin today. If you did the first exercise, you hopefully now have proof and a conviction that Satan and the battle is real. You have your why. Why you need to put on the armor of God. If you did the second exercise, you now know your job assignment in the army. If you did not do this exercise, I invite you to really take this serious and do it. Don't half do it just thinking the answers in your mind. Really do it. When we have pen and paper in hand and have said a prayer, we let the Lord know we want inspiration. This is a valuable opportunity to communicate with your Heavenly Father. Let Him tell you how special you are and what your role is in His plan. We also learned why Satan was attacking us. Because we are important in this cause. We each have an assignment in this army. Or in other words, a mission to fulfill. And Satan wants to stop us. He wants to win this battle. But the good news is, we already know what the outcome of the battle will be. The Lord will win. But the question we must ask ourselves is, which side am I on? That is what today's episode is all about. We're going to start off with Cade telling us some of the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. The story of Joseph is another great story of someone who has on the armor of God, who is given challenge after challenge, and yet he endures strong. These trials are opportunities to strengthen his spiritual muscles, and he makes the most of them. Because Joseph trusts in the Lord, the Lord strengthens and molds him to do a great work. Thanks, Cade, for being willing to share with us the story of Joseph in Egypt. Cade is 14 years old, and we learned a little bit about him and his gifts and talents and missions in our last audio. So, Cade, tell us about the story of Joseph. So, it starts off with him and his brothers, and his father loves him, and so he gives him a coat of many colors. And this coat, the brothers are very jealous of him for because it's showing that his father loves him more than they do. And so they're kind of mad at him. Yeah, it's kind of like they're really jealous and envious of him. And I think there's more to this story of of this coat than what we realize. I mean, he said it's colorful, but I've read different accounts where it talks about, you know, it might have had really long sleeves or went to the ground or something. The fact that it was expensive to make, which not everybody got and maybe was symbolic of Joseph being given the birthright where he's the younger son and he's got all these older brothers that, you know, could look at it and say, hey, uh, excuse me, I'm older than him. Why are you giving him these special privileges? Yeah, and so he's he has these two dreams that are telling him that he's going to rule over people and he's going to have dominion over them. And his brothers like that even less when he tells them because they're just jealous of him even more because he's saying that he's going to be a ruler over them. 
Yeah, really makes them even more envious. And, and that's brewing in their hearts when uh, Joseph's father says, Hey, aren't your brothers out there such and such place? Would you go check on them? Yeah, and so he goes to check on them and he can't find them. And so he asks this person. This person tells him where they are and he goes and when he's afar off, they conspire against him and they want to kill him. All, all but for Reuben. And he says, let's just cast him into a pit. And so they do that and they take off his coat of many colors and throw him in a pit. And then as they're eating, a caravan comes by and they think well, we'll just sell him and be rid of him because we... Yeah, we don't necessarily want to kill him. He's our own flesh and blood, technically. <laughs> like, let's just sell him. Yeah, so they sell him and Reuben gets kind of mad and I guess they didn't... Yeah, he comes upon him later. He's, you know, it was kind of a secret plan. Well, I'll convince him just to stick him in this pit and then I'll come back and rescue him and it'll all be okay. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so Joseph gets sold in Egypt to Potiphar. And Potiphar is a wealthy man and has many servants. Yeah, he, it says he's chief of the guard. And I don't know, but what, he's pretty close with Pharaoh and pretty high up, I'd imagine. But yeah, Joseph is put in charge of everything in his house. Yeah, he's put in charge. And one day his wife comes tempting him and he just tells her that that he won't commit that sin before God. Yeah, and then she doesn't give up. It says day after day she does this over and over and over. And then she finally sees her opportunity. When everyone's out of the house, she tries tempting him again. And she grabs him and he tries to get out and he leaves his coat and... So she says to the servants when she calls them in, I've been calling for you and Joseph has been trying to tempt me. And so here's his coat to yeah. kind of like prove it. He's been here. Totally lying huh, to her husband and her husband gets all mad. And he being high up like he was, he totally could have had Joseph killed for that. I think the Lord's hand was in it and... And I don't know, it makes me wonder too if you really knew the difference between his wife's character and Joseph's character and maybe knew the truth. But at any rate, he's just thrown into prison, huh? And so he gets brought up and gets in favor with the master of the prisons. And he becomes sort of like below the master, but like his servant. Yeah, he's in charge of all the prisoners. <laughs> like... Wherever he goes, he's put over, put over everything. Acts like the master, sees what great person he is. Mm -hmm. So the Pharaoh, he doesn't like the butler and the cook. And so he puts them in prison. And they have these dreams on the same night. And Joseph tells the interpretation to them. The interpretation was that the butler was going to be restored to his position and the cook would be killed. And so in three days, that's what happens. The butler gets restored to his position 
and the cook, the baker, yeah, he gets hanged. And Joseph, he after he tells him the interpretation, he's like, um, please remember me. I was wrongfully imprisoned here, and you're gonna go back to the Pharaoh. You could have a good sway to help me get out of here. And he totally forgets him. The butler remembers when the Pharaoh has a dream about these corn that are full. Says, and then they get eaten with by these scrawny horn, and these cattle. Seven cow, yeah. Are full and fat. Fat. <laughs> and they get eaten by these scrawny ones. And so Butler remembers, and he's like, hey, there's this guy back in prison that I left. He could probably inter- interpret the dream. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, that here he had applied to all the wise men and the magicians in the country. And you'd think that they would have just made up something to come up with an answer to please the Pharaoh. But it's like, I think, the Lord stepped in and kind of closed up their mind to even be able to think of something fake or anything to resemble some form of an answer to that dream so that he was getting really frustrated and desperate to find somebody. And it, he was given that opportunity to realize that there's nobody that can interpret dreams. So this is perfect opportunity. The butler tells him about Joseph and then Joseph's brought to him. The Pharaoh asks him, I've, I've heard you can interpret dreams. He says, no, it's not me. It's God that can interpret dreams. Yeah, so then he tells him the dream, and he's able to interpret it, and and he believes him right off, doesn't he? And Joseph gives him some counsel, and... The Pharaoh thinks, wow, you're pretty great. I think I'll uh, make you second in command, just below me, and you'll be good part ruler. Yeah, nobody will be more powerful than you, except for me. (laughs) Yeah. He says, nobody is more wise than you are and has the Spirit of God with with them like you do. What do you guys think? What did you admire about Joseph? His understanding. Understanding of what? Of his knowledge and how he had complete faith in God. Mm -hmm. He went through so many things. How do you think he handled all those trials that came his way? Probably with faith, and it's like there's a meaning to all this. Mm -hmm. I think so. I mean, you think about if he was risen up in power wherever he went, I mean, power with in mind, he's still a slave, but in Potiphar's house, he oversaw everything. In the prison, he oversaw all the prisoners. If he wouldn't have handled it well, he'd have been pretty pouty, do you think? He would have been brought up. All the powerful people probably saw this as a righteous person, a person that was had lots of faith in God. and Yeah, they saw the Heavenly Father was blessing all his labors. Like whatever Joseph did, it prospered, huh? What else do you guys admire about Joseph? And... I think he must have been pretty kind and good to everybody because for him to be a prisoner... And then for the prison keeper to say, hey, you be in charge of the prisoners, he had to be probably kind of outgoing and good to everybody. He probably had some really great leadership qualities, huh? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we previously talked about how David was prepared for some of his missions. Do you see how the Lord prepared Joseph for some of his missions? He had dreams. Yeah, isn't that neat? He gave him the gifts that he would need to be able to interpret dreams, to be that person in the right place at the right time to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. What do you think about the miraculousness of how the Lord got Joseph, a Hebrew, in a foreign country to be second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt? A long way away. I mean, the Lord had this great plan in mind, right? What are some of the miracles you see in that whole process? I kind of think it's like a humbling process and a testing process. To like, he was testing him, the father was like, testing him like, is he worthy enough? Mm. It was a tremendous testing process, huh? Katie, you said you'd like to learn about the body. Have you learned about muscles and how they grow, become bigger? Well, you exercise them. And when you exercise them, they of sorts break. And then they reform and create new ones so they can better serve your body. Yeah builds them up as they repair they build them stronger right so in joseph's case how could we liken his experience all his different experiences that helped him to basically grow spiritual muscles how did he get stronger well i think if he'd been asked as a kid hey this pharaoh has a dream can you inter- interpret it i don't know that he would have been able to but then he came closer and for with faith towards God. Yeah, all those experiences helped him to trust in the Lord. It's like as soon as he rose up in power, he was taken away again. It was a humbling process for him. What are some of the attributes he gained through all those processes? His brothers throwing him in a pit and being a slave in Pharaoh's house. Probably yeah. some humility. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah, his brothers probably thought he was pretty prideful sharing all these dreams, and he did, I bet, gain a lot of humility. And endurance, too, probably. Yeah, he did learn how to endure. He talked about how he gained a lot of faith and trust in the Lord. He knew that the Lord had a plan, and so he just was patient and submissive to that, and he reminds me of the Savior in that way. He was submissive to whatever Heavenly Father wanted him to go through, and then was able to free his people at the end. You know, the Savior was able to free his free us from sin, and, and he was able to free his family from famine. What did he learn in Potiphar's house to be prepared for when he was over Pharaoh's storehouse that prepared him for his ultimate mission? Probably with the leadership that he needed to do that, I guess. And it kind of it gave him strength in the roles which he would be given. And that way he would know that he would pers- persevere. Yeah, for sure. He was just a shepherd boy, I think, previously. He wasn't used to living in a city and needing to be an accountant and to handle all these goods and all the people. Like, what did he learn in prison? Learned to be a leader in that situation. Yeah. Wonderful. And it kind of like he like was given his way of his manner, the way he carried himself. Not like if he's like slumped down and like just sitting there and not doing anything, that's not going to inspire anyone. He, that person would not be a great leader. Mm-hmm. 
But if that person is upright and standing straight and walks rightly in the covenant paths of God, that person would always be a great leader. Yeah, he probably learned a lot of leadership skills from the time when he was with his brothers, and he probably went about things maybe wrong in the fact that when he told the dreams to them and they didn't respond well to that, maybe he's learned how to converse with people more and be a better leader. So what do you think helped Joseph to be strong against the temptations of Potiphar's wife when she came tempting? How was he able to resist her temptations? She wasn't really tempted about the fact, like, I have the Lord with me. Like, I cannot do this great wickedness. How can I do this great wickedness before God? Yeah, what do you think was going on in his heart that he would say, how can I do this great wickedness against God? Well, right before that, he said, Potiphar made me like second of everything and that is something that the Lord has blessed me with like why why would I do this sin that I know that God would not be happy with yeah that's super insightful it's like he was seeing all that the Lord had done to bless him and so he's like why would I go turn against the Lord and do something that would disappoint him when he's done so much good for me kind of gives you insight to his character if He's technically a slave, and yet he's seeing all the tender mercies that the Lord has done for him. Yeah, I think it's really neat that he knows that Heavenly Father is watching over him, and he knows he's going to stand before Heavenly Father someday and be judged of him. And this life is just a small speck in that spectrum, and he gives his allegiance to Heavenly Father. That's the one that matters the most. I'm not going to worry about pleasing Potiphar's wife or making her embarrassed or disappointing her. I care more about not disappointing Heavenly Father. What do you guys think it would take to be like Joseph and to flee? Like he, he doesn't entertain the thought. He sees what she's about and he just leaves his coat and runs. I like that. Yeah, I do too. Like... What do you think that would look like in our day and age for us to leave our coat and run? I think the coat can sometimes rep- represent our house. Like, we would have to leave it and go. Yeah, maybe like our worldly possessions. Like, I don't care about what man thinks and its prestige and everything that way. I'm going to leave it behind and go do what the Lord wants me to do. I had a thought. It kind of might be like if you have a good job and it's good paying, and and your boss wants you to do something that wouldn't be pleasing to the Lord, and so you might get fired for not wanting to do it, would you still be willing to do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, leave behind the prestige of the world and, and do what you know is morally right. I mean, that's what he was doing with Potiphar's wife. He says, there's no way you, I'm going to, you know, do what I know would be morally wrong. I thought of kind of a modern day example where if you were at a party and they were, say, drinking or something and you knew that you had a standard that you didn't want to do that and instead of staying for just a little bit to pretend like you're cool or to make sure that you don't look like not cool that you're leaving now or something, you just leave right then anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like avoid even the appearance of evil in many ways. Don't even go there, you know? I think those are fantastic examples. Anybody else have any other thoughts? 
I think each of these experiences really did help to strengthen his spiritual muscles and and made him better able to resist the temptations that Satan was throwing at him as he as he did that next right thing and listened to the promptings of the spirit his spiritual muscles were strengthened and you just see the Lord's guiding hand that even though it you know for all intents and purposes looked like he was just getting the short end of the stick he's thrown in this pit his brothers don't like him he's now a slave in Potiphar's house and then he's thrown into prison and he's there for several years it would be super hard not to get discouraged but then you look back after you know the whole picture and you can see how really these were all blessings in disguise how else was the Lord going to get a young boy I mean he was 17 when he started off to be in the house of the Pharaoh, second in command in Egypt. And that's how it is with us. I mean, the Lord has this big plan and our adversities really are opportunities for us to grow and become stronger. And just like our missions, that when we fulfill our missions, they help us to become better people. We not only help the Lord's children, just like Joseph was, but he also became a much better person when he was submissive and, and did what the Lord wanted him to do. Thanks so much, you guys, for taking that effort to ponder and think about this story and how it could apply to our life. I really feel like the Spirit teaches us so much when we take the time to discuss these stories. From our discussion, we learned that Joseph had a love and fear, a respect, for the Lord that governed his choices. He maintained an eternal perspective. This life isn't the end. It is but a small speck in our eternal existence, and if we do well, we will hear as the servant in the Savior's parable of the talents. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. So what does it take to obtain that level of conviction like Joseph? What does it take to gain that kind of love and gratitude for the Lord that we would never want to disappoint Him? The answer? Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. What does it mean to gird your loins? In Paul's day, men wore long robes, which weren't very conducive to running or working in. So they would gird up these robes by taking the hem of the robe and back and bringing it up between their legs to tuck it into their belt, making their skirt now more like pants. Now they're ready for action as their legs could move freely. It also became an expression to mean man up or get to work. Gird also means to put a belt on, securely attaching something to your person, whether it was your clothes, a sword, or whatever you wanted to attach to your person. Before we talk about what it means to have your loins girt about with truth, let's talk about some potential symbolism we can find by looking at the loins. Your loin area is where your reproductive organs are found. They represent virtue, fidelity, and chastity. It is where all future posterity stems from, a perpetuation of life. It also reminds us of our parents where we came from. Since we are speaking of the armor of God, the loin area would remind us of our heavenly parents and that we need to be faithful, loyal, and obedient to them. If we think of the girding process as a call to action or to get ready for battle, we can think of girding our loins as a call to decide to join this fight 
and to decide which side we are going to fight on. If we are going to gird or secure ourselves as we would a belt of truth, we must figure out which side in this battle has the truth. We must study and learn what is true and which side is teaching it. We talked about the first step in putting on the armor of God was to identify that there really is a battle going on. And hopefully you've done the exercise where you wrote down the lies you found Satan shooting at you and that you have that conviction that there truly is a battle going on. Now the next step is to gird up your loins. Or in other words, decide if you are going to join this battle and whose side is the just, true cause. Who is right? Who has the truth? To put all these thoughts together, to gird up our loins with truth is to make a determined choice to fight in this battle with the Lord as our captain. We know he is the way, the truth, and the life. This girds or securely fastens to us our purpose for everything we do. It gives us our why. Why are we going to obey the orders of our captain? Why? Because what he says is true and right. He and truth are synonymous. Obeying his orders is the way to win the battle and the only way to achieve our goal of happiness of living with him in heaven after this life. Knowing our why gives us conviction to stand strong against the wiles of Satan. Joseph had his loins girt with truth and could say with conviction why he would not give in to the wiles of Potiphar's wife. His allegiance was to his captain, and there was no way she was going to tempt him to disobey his orders. His captain had entrusted him with great blessings and responsibilities, and Joseph was not going to let him down. When a battle is raging all around us, it is rather naive of us to think we can just stay out of it, that we will just be a spectator and not choose either side. But if one side is shooting fiery darts at you and the other side is offering you protection in their ranks and you choose not to take it, then you are sure to fall prey to those fiery darts. In Revelations chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, the Lord shares how he feels about those who don't wish to pick a side. Quote, I know thy works. Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. End quote. He goes on to say in verse 17, one of the reasons we don't join his side is because we often mistakenly think we can take care of ourselves. Quote, because thou sayest, I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. End quote. But in verse 18 through 20, you hear him patiently calling to us still, despite our pride, offering true help and protection, not this counterfeit protection of trusting in your own strength. Quote, Thou knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesob, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. The safest thing we can do is choose to be counted in the ranks of his soldiers and further ourselves into the Lord's side. I say further ourselves into the Lord's side because the more committed we are to living God's law, the safer we are. It is poignant that in the middle of the story of Joseph, as found in Genesis, they interrupt the story to tell about how Judah allowed himself to be tempted by who he thought was a harlot, which was really his daughter-in-law. We have two comparing stories of one who is totally committed to the Lord and wouldn't even entertain the thought of sinning and disappointing the Lord, versus Judah, who entertained those enticing thoughts until he had committed the sin. We need to be all in. We need to further ourselves into the Lord's side. There is a line of demarcation between the Lord's side and Satan's side. The closer we are to that line, the more enticing sin will be. But the deeper in we are, then Satan's enticements won't be as enticing. Now, don't get me wrong that we reach total immunity to them. Satan has had thousands of years to perfect his heart. He is very good at what he does. And we will never be perfect in this life to reach that point of immunity. But hopefully you can see the progress you have made in your life. That some sins aren't even a temptation for you anymore because of how you have committed yourself to obeying God's commandments. There are countless times the Lord lets his people know that he is a jealous God when it comes to our choosing him and being faithful. He often refers to the people as unfaithful children or whores who go after other lovers or gods. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 verses 7 through 10, we see how he feels when he has symbolically given them life, birth, by freeing them from the Egyptians. All he asks is that they are faithful to him as a child is to their father. Quote, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any engraven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 28 through 32, we see how he regards us as being married to him and how he feels when we turn to others for guidance, protection, and love. Thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians, because thou wast insatiable. Yea, thou hast played the harlot with them, and yet couldst not be satisfied. Thou hast moreover multiplied thy fornication in the land of Canaan unto the Chaldea, and yet thou wast not satisfied herewith. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou doest all these things, the work of an imperious, whorish woman, 
in that thou buildest thine eminent place in the head of every way, and makest thine high place in every street, and hast not been as an harlot in that thou scornest higher, but as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband. These are the two greatest connections we can have with anyone, to be their child or their spouse. And that is how he feels about us. He loves us as the sons and daughters that we are to him, and even as a very spouse, united together as one flesh. But no good marriage or child-to-parent relationship exists without the work of spending time together, getting to know each other, loving and serving each other. I am sure both Joseph and David had spent a great deal of time coming to know and love God. They came to know that God was the ultimate source of fulfillment for their lives. He can satisfy everything we need, too, if we will turn to Him. For our physical body, He offers us protection. For our mind, He offers us truth and wisdom. For our heart, He offers us His perfect love. And for our spirit, He offers us true joy, a life full of meaning and purpose, achieved by being a part of his great work. Both David and Joseph desired to make a difference in the lives of their people and willingly acted upon the promptings they were given. Thus they fulfilled the missions the Lord gave them to do and felt true joy. We must be constantly building that relationship with the Lord, though. Or just as a marriage, we will fall out of love and go whoring about as the Israelites did. We will expound more about how to build this strong relationship throughout our discussion with the various pieces of armor. Just as all the parts of our glorious body work together for a perfect harmony, the armor works together in perfect harmony to fully arm us. The core of what it means to gird ourselves with truth is to make a determined choice to fight in this battle with the Lord as our captain. We are manning up and getting ready to work, securely attaching ourselves to the Lord's side. Once we come to a conviction that God is the source of protection, truth, love, and joy, and once we decide to faithfully espouse ourselves to Him and maintain that relationship, then we will be like Joseph, We will know who our allegiance is to, and with love and respect, we will honor all his orders. We will resist Satan's temptations. My daughter Danielle is now going to tell us a story or an experience she had when she went rappelling. Rappelling is a great metaphor to life. It shows the importance of having our loins girt about with truth. So, Danielle, tell us about your experience with rappelling. So one time at girls camp, usually the older girls are able to have an opportunity to go rappelling for girls camp. And so this one time, I was probably 15 or 16, and I went to this girls camp and I knew that we were going to go rappelling. And when the time came, we all got into the car and It was a little bit of a drive, like a rocky drive to get up there. And it was kind of fun because we had more girls in there and we were laughing and talking. But it was kind of like 
anticipating the scary thing about going repellent. Something that you kind of have to know about me is I'm not a daredevil. (laughs) I am (laughs) not used to doing stuff like that. I used to do like flips on the trampoline and then I would just psych myself out because I'm just a fraidy cat kind of person. So I was kind of scared and excited and really scared. (laughs) So we get up there and there was quite a few girls that were going to do this and they were already going and going down rappelling, I guess. And while we were waiting, I was just kind of trying to fill the time. But the one thing that I didn't do was look down the mountain. (laughs) I probably might not have been able to do it if I did. But so when the time came that it was my turn, we just gird up our loins. (laughs) (laughs) You put on a harness. Yeah, we put on a harness. That's what it's called. (laughs) Yeah. So we put on a harness. It was, it felt secure and it was all great. And we got hooked up to the rope, which was secured to, like, big rock rock cliff. I don't know. But it was secured. And then they wanted you to lean back and trust the rope. And that was something that was really hard because... So you're walking backwards? Yeah. You're, you're literally walking backwards off a cliff. <laughs> it wasn't... Normal. Normal. (laughs) Yeah, and the whole time I wasn't going to look down. I was not going to look down because that would be really scary. They basically just want you to trust in the rope that it will support you because you have to lean back so that you're more perpendicular to the rock so it's like you're walking backwards down the cliff. But that was really hard because I... Yeah, I probably took like 10 minutes just getting down because I was just trying to step down and trust in what I'm used to, you know, just stepping down, like stepping downstairs or something. Yeah, staying vertical. Yeah, staying vertical, but the only way it really works is if you lean back and trust the rope. So eventually I was able to do that. It took a lot of time. But I was able to lean back and trust in the rope. And so I was able to launch off and start actually going down the cliff. I was able to make it to the bottom. It was okay. I didn't die. <laughs> but yeah. Do you see the difference of those who had been many times versus you? How did you go down the, the cliff? Yeah, some people who had done it before were just cruising down and were just having a blast. And... I was like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> they're jumping back. And yeah, you're Their feet are leaving the off. cliff wall. Uh-huh, yeah. No, thanks for sharing that. I remember going as a youth a long time ago, and I, yeah, I remember that feeling at the top where they're just like, lean back, you've got to take up the slack of this rope so that it'll hold you. I'm like, this is like one of those crazy trust exercises that, yeah. you know, you do at a work team building activity or one of these youth conferences where you're just supposed to fall back and trust that everybody's going to catch you. And you're like, no way. Once you gain a little experience with that rope, you're like, okay, it's holding me. It's holding me. And I remember it was, it was challenging because where you're going backwards, you could only really see the next step. You couldn't have like this great vista out in front of you. Okay, I'm going to walk over here and walk over here. And 
It was just what you could directly see your feet about to step into. And, and obviously, if you totally turned around, your balance would be off and you'd, you'd fall and smack into the cliff, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I remember, too, right as you're getting to the bottom, you have to do this another little leap because <laughs> your body is almost parallel to the ground and you've now got to get back perpendicular to the ground, just like you had to make that shift at the top to go from being vertical to being horizontal, which was the cliff face perpendicular. And so you've got to do that again. And it's like this little leap of faith that, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like smash into the rock or the ground or something, but I've got to get back on the ground. Yeah, it was one of those, once you were done, you were fully hyped up. You were, wow, I did something hard. Yeah, I was pretty proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That took a lot of effort. (laughs) So how is that like life? How's that like girding up your loins, do you think? See, that harness, you had to buckle on really tight. Mm -hmm. And it's literally in the same area as girding your loins. I mean, your loin area, it's supporting you. In what ways do you see repelling like life? Having your loins girt about with truth. That's kind of like, well, I guess the cliff can sort of symbolize the trials that we have or life in general that we have to go through. And to get through that, we we have to rely on the Savior, like our rope. And And that rock it's attached to, huh? mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, like, the commandments that Heavenly Father gives us. Because that's something that you really need to go repelling is to trust in that rope and to have that rope there and trust in it. Yeah, and it took a little experience trusting in it. We have to use that faith to take up that slack. Okay, Uh, is this truth I'm living really going to be a source of protection if I'm following this? Because so often we start to worry about what the world will think. And we question those truths that Heavenly Father is teaching. But if we'll just try it, if we'll just test that rope, we discover it's a very secure rope. It's better than any worldly rope that we could go off of. And the Lord's rock is... I mean, if you're going to have a crazy trust exercise, you'd want to have it with the Lord because Mm -hmm. He's perfect. He's never going to let you down. What do you think that's like also the part where... You had friends who had been rappelling before and been many times, and they were bouncing off the cliff, and, you know, with their feet, they were doing little jumps and letting down long bits of rope, and just, they just looked like they were having fun. And here you were going one hand at a time, trying to just get down the cliff safely. So I guess that can be like someone who's had a little more experience with trusting in the Lord because they have found that the rope works. It does protect you and they are having more joy in life with what they're doing because they know that it will work out, that they can trust in the rope, they can trust in Christ and they can get through something and it can be a really great experience for them again. I agree. If you think about the Lord being the rock that we're attached to and this rope are all his truths, his commandments, and all those truths are founded on natural laws. They will not change and they've come to know that if they follow those commandments, those truths, that life goes so much more smoothly. They are enjoying life more the more they get used to obeying the commandments and living that life. And whereas when we first are trying to test out these commandments and is this true, and we may simply just hand over hand, one step at a time, 
let me try this truth. Let me try this truth. Let me try this truth. And we're slowly making it through life as we're building upon these truths and becoming better at living them. And you think about the more you become to know for yourself that those commandments are a truth from Heavenly Father that will help us to have a happy life. We will enjoy this life more. We will find joy in this journey. And I think it's interesting. What is it like that we had to walk backwards when we were repelling? It's kind of like just walking with faith. Like we don't know exactly our path yet. But as we ask the Lord for answers to our prayers, that we just have to trust in Him and trust in His plan and the way that it goes. We are literally blindfolded. When we come to earth, we have this veil over our eyes. We can't see where we're going or why we're here on the earth. And we have to just listen to those still small voice promptings that come to us that help us to know that Heavenly Father is there. And He says, I've got you. Just trust me. Lean on me. Lean on this rock. Walking by faith. And, and as we take that step, we can see a little bit farther. Another little area is exposed to our sight that we can see, okay, here's where I need to go. And as we take that leap of faith, we can see another step into where we need to go. What do you think that's like in life where we shouldn't be looking down or you didn't look down before you got started because it would make you dizzy and maybe lose control? I kind of think of in the pre-mortal realm before we came to earth, how Heavenly Father didn't say like these are all the things that you're going to go through because I think we would be kind of intimidated and think why why do I want to do this and we might just sort of give up and maybe looking too far ahead and just thinking of all the things that could possibly go wrong in your life or something and kind of psyching yourself out like thinking that you can't do it but if you just take it one step at a time, then you'll be okay. Yeah, it's true. Fearful future is, is a phrase that I like to say. It's like if we dwell too much in the painful past or the fearful future, we get really worried and upset and we lose focus. But if we just simply focus right there, okay, what's my next step? What do I need to do? You have your ultimate goal in mind. You know what you want to do, but it's just when we get caught up in too many of the details of what could happen or go wrong but yeah I, I totally agree too in the fact that it makes me think of your experience where you were driving there and there's this excitement and yet there's this fear of the unknown as to how it was probably when we were in heaven and we were so excited to come down to earth and receive our bodies so that we can be like heavenly father and have a physical body and have this amazing experience where we're going to learn all these things but then there's also this fear of What's it going to be like? Am I going to be successful in this little adventure, this experience I'm going on? And it's, I think, a fantastic parallel to life. And that little leap of faith as we leave heaven and, and go over the edge of the cliff and start in on life. What do you think it could represent, too, when we had to make that another little leap at the bottom? Maybe before we die, it can be a little intimidating to say it's okay. You know, I'm going to a great place, you know, and I've made it. I've done a good job. Yeah. And I'm just being okay with that, I guess. It can be an intimidating experience. We don't know what it's like to die, and it can be very scary, but it's a part of the process. 
Mm-hmm. It's necessary to get back in that vertical position, just like we started off with. In heaven, we were in a vertical position at the top of the mountain. And again at the bottom, when we're done with this life, we've got to get in a vertical position again. We are going, to, going back to heaven, and it's part of the process, and it can be scary, both, both ends, the top and the bottom. Well, thank you, Danielle, for sharing that story with us. We definitely, if we will turn to the Lord and have our loins girt about with truth, he will truly support us. Just as that girdle does for us, it is our support. It carries all our weight as we're going down this mountain. And Heavenly Father, he's got us. He is mindful of us, and sometimes we question about the little exercise he's having us do, this repelling, as we feel like, Heavenly Father, this is scary. Are you sure you want me to fulfill this mission? This is out of my comfort zone. But that if we will have faith in him, he will prove to us that he's got us. And it may not be in the way we think he's got us, but he knows better than we do. He's got that perfect perspective from the top looking down, and he knows what will be best for us, and we can rely on him. He's perfect. Yeah. So how can we know that we are attaching ourselves to the rope of truth and the rock of God? There are a couple things we can do. We can pray for Heavenly Father to guide us, and we can test the information or principle. In James chapter 1, verse 5, it declares, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that give it to all men liberally, and it braideth not, and it shall be given him. The Lord promises us through his apostle that if we will ask the Lord, he will answer our questions. He will guide us to truth. Our task is to prepare ourselves for receiving that truth. Do we really want to know the truth? Are we open to whatever the answer may be? Our hearts need to be soft. Or as the Savior's parable of the sower teaches, our ground needs to be good ground for the seed, the word of God, to fall into so that it can take root. Are we praying with diligence and faith? Do we believe he can reveal it to us? Are we willing to be patient for his timetable? For him to reveal it to us. Just as good ground is ground that has been cultivated and fertilized, the Lord loves us to prepare ourselves. He wants us to do our part in coming to the truth. He has provided us with a mind that can think and a heart that can feel. We are to gain all the knowledge we can and study it out in our mind, coming to a conclusion as to what we believe is true. We then see how we feel when we believe that piece of knowledge or that principle. We then turn to the Lord in prayer, and just as a triangle is one of the strongest shapes, or the number three means complete, the Holy Ghost then acts as the third point of evidence to confirm the truth. If it is true, we'll feel peace, and if it is not, we'll feel unsettled and uncertain. Next, we need to test it by living it. Living it will help us get results that will confirm or refute its truthfulness. Remember the story, Red Scarf Girl? I could discern the truth by the fruits or results of living Chairman Mao's teachings. The people were not happy. There was anger, belittling, and contention. 
I could see by the results, or the fruits, that this was not a heaven-inspired plan. The fruits of following the Lord, as manifested to us by the Spirit, are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Remember the Lord loves effort. If we have come to believe something is true, or even if we just believe it might be true, He wants us to test it, to prove it, to live it. By living this truth, we will begin to see the fruits or blessings from living it. We will feel those fruits of the Spirit, adding an additional witness to keeping the principle or truth. Through repetitive living of those truths, our belief will turn into knowledge. We will have tested that rope and be as the youth who had been repelling many times and could with greater confidence jump down the cliff. You know Joseph tested the rope and came to know of its steadiness. He was going to trust in the Lord no matter what trial came his way. Remember David telling Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. He knew who had the power and protection that he needed. He had tested and proved that the Lord would help him if he had faith in him. David wasn't going to exchange in the Lord's secure and strong rope for man's counterfeit. Saul's armor. I'm sure that if the Lord chose not to save either of these two valiant young men, both would have answered as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did to King Nebuchadnezzar. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. How is it they were okay if the Lord didn't save them? Isn't God offering protection for our bodies? He was offering us protection for our bodies, wisdom for our minds, love for our hearts, and joy for our spirits. Why would he allow righteous people to suffer and die? Remember the primary aim or goal in this battle is to save our souls. The fight isn't against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness. By Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego never giving in to Satan's temptation, no matter what he did to their body, that is what made them truly win. They never gave in. They won the fight over their soul. There are many martyrs throughout history who have been tested to the greatest level, a level the Lord won't ask of most of us, that of being tried whether they would remain faithful to God and His truths, totally surrendering their will to Heavenly Father, even if they were to lose their life. The world may look on and think they lost, but we who have eyes to see know that they have conquered and achieved a crown of glory in heaven. They have won. For the rest of us, we can look to Joseph's example when bad things happen to us and remember that the Lord has a plan and that he is molding us for a great work if we will be submissive and allow this trial to draw us closer to him and mold us into the people he knows we can be. As we do so, He will be able to do a great work through us. 
John 14, 6 is a good summary for what it means to be girt about with truth. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This piece of armor means we know the Lord is the way to happiness and eternal life, and that he and truth are one and the same. We know he has the truth, and we choose to be faithfully committed to him. We are so loyal, dedicated, and tied to the Lord, even as a faithful spouse, that no other person or thing comes above him. He is our God. He and his truths are our lifeline. We put all our weight and trust in him as we repel through this life. It is my prayer that we will choose him, leaving father and mother and cleaving unto him, becoming one flesh, as it says in Genesis. May we have no other gods beside him, but truly give our whole obedience and person over to his care. I know that as we do, Satan will have no power over us. In our next audio, we will expose Satan's counterfeit to having our loins girt about with truth. I think you will find it an eye-opening experience. Until then, we'll see you next time.